Aloha and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, blow the dust away from them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so. My name's Tom Galley. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pasculi. Happy to be here as always. And what are we reading today? What are we talking about today? Uh, Today we are talking about uh, James Clavell's uh, first book in the Asian saga called Shogun, set in feudal Japan. All right. The standard obligatory first question. Why is this a favorite? Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) It's, you know, this may be the first book I was ever obsessed with. Like, like there are books you read and you're like, oh, that's a really good book. And then later you read them again. You're like, yeah, that's a really good book. This, this was a book that like shaped my life. Uh, I, I encountered this, uh, this is, this is back in the day when, when the hallmark of a good book for me was length. Uh, and we were traveling, my whole family was traveling through Europe and I wanted to pick a really fat paperback that would last for a while. And this is 1700 pages long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that was my main criteria for picking it. And I got so immersed in the world of Shogun that my parents were annoyed. They're like, we are literally traveling through Europe and you are traveling through ancient Japan. What the hell, man? (laughs) (laughs) Be here now, not there then. Yeah. On reread, having experienced now and not having experienced it then, Game of Thrones uh, in various formats, this reminds me a lot uh, I didn't think of it this way at the time, but it reminds me a lot of an epic fantasy trilogy. Mm-hmm. It really feels like second world fantasy. Uh, it's just such a a rich and complex society and world with fascinating people with completely different alien customs and worldviews. I mean, these alien these aliens, Japanese, uh, <laughs> are so alien to the wor- European worldview. Uh, and yet so completely fleshed out and realized because, of course, they're, you know, based on real people. Uh, but it was staggering to me at the time how different they were uh, in a way that a lot of aliens are not uh, or, or fantasy creatures. They're just like, you know, centaurs are just people with four legs. And, yeah. you know, um, it blew me away, blew me away. Yeah. Well, that was that was one of my reactions to it, too. Um, the Japanese as an alien culture, yeah. you know, and... Earlier, we've read a book by C.S. Friedman, and one of the things I praised her for is the fact that she could actually develop an alien culture that yes. was alien was and alien. self-cohesive. Yeah. And this did that. Okay, again, the, the <laughs> Japanese are not aliens. They're but not. The, the, the difference, the disparity between these two cultures was nearly irreconcilable, and yet they were both internally consistent. Yeah. Um, the pheasant... Oh, oh my, my God, God the, the pheasant story. pheasant story. <laughs> that just encapsulates everything about the, the, the differences and the strife and the, the, how much there was to overcome between the cultures. Yeah, that's brutal. Uh, I don't yeah. know, do we want to fill our listeners in on the pheasant story? I suppose we that we them... can't not <laughs> talk about the pheasant story. Uh, uh, you want to? Sure. So, so, uh, so our main character is a... Is a Dutch pilot named Blackthorn, uh, who goes by Engine San because no one can pronounce Blackthorn uh, in his newfound land. And he, through a series of interesting events, rises to become a per- person with a certain amount of prominence and gets a household uh, to take care of and take care of him. And in this exclusively, uh, I would say, pescatarian society, uh, he decides that he wants to eat some meat and hunts uh, a pheasant and wants to prepare it in the traditional English way, uh, leaving it 
hanging from the uh, rafters by the neck uh, until the meat is tender, which means basically it's rotting. Critically, yeah. he instructs his household, nobody's to touch the pheasant but me. Yes, and he says that lightly as a joke, but because he is the master, they take it absolutely seriously. And when he doesn't attend to the pheasant himself and they decide it presents a health hazard, they have to choose the lowest servant among them uh, to take the pheasant down in absolute defiance of his orders, and then that servant must be put to death. Yep. Yeah. But the, uh, the servant, it turns out, right, is an elderly gardener who's in a great deal of pain, and yeah. him finding an honorable death, which this gives him, is actually considered, he considers it a, a blessing, and the whole household considers it a good thing. Yeah. Right? But then Blackthorn comes home. And he's, he's destroyed by this. He's like, how could you be so stupid to kill this man? The bird didn't matter. It's like, it's not about the bird, man. It's about our entire society, which you don't get, even though you've been here for a while. <laughs> right. And he's yelling. He's fuming at his entire household staff. So his, it's not his wife. Um, consort. His consort yeah. takes his killing sword and extends it to him, <laughs> hilt first, because you're displeased. The only thing you can do now is kill me. Yeah. You know, yeah. And he storms off and... No one survives this, right? Everyone is shamed. He's shamed yeah. for, for his explosion. They're shamed for the fact they've displeased the, ma the master of the house over a, a rotten bird. It's, it's devastating, and yet it feels credible to me in a way that... Um, I don't know if you know a short story called The Cold Equations... Is this the one about the, um, the stowaway, the stowaway on the spaceship? Yeah, yeah, it's like, we have to space you, sorry. And which feels utterly contrived to me because it's like, how much can this girl weigh? She weighs like 60 kilos. How can kilos? they run the margins that close? Yeah, yeah, come on. Everybody sacrifice a kilo of clothing or personal effects to save this girl's life. Yeah, yeah. no. Uh, but this doesn't feel that way. This feels, this, this is just two cultures clashing with disastrous results. Yep. And this is this is well into the book. I yeah. mean, Blackthorn has has made heroic strides in adapting to Japanese culture, or so we think and so he thinks. Yeah. And then this happens, and it's like there are still miles to go. Oh, yeah. These, these may still well be irreconcilable cultures. Yeah. So, so one of the things, as I was reading this, I think I might have mentioned this to you offline, is... Uh, Rereading re this book now uh, made me reflect on um, the Donaldson fantasy trilogy, um, which is called what now? Thomas Covenant. Thomas series. Covenant, right. Yeah, which, you know, I read that series when I was in high school, and, and I loved it because I was just, just tearing through everything that was even vaguely fantasy related at the time. But I always had a problem with Thomas Covenant of being thrust into a fantasy world and being bitter about it. Uh, and I'm just like, you, you raging ass, you know, not only do you not have leprosy here, you are a hero. You're the white gold wielder. And all you can do is complain and gripe. And it's like, you're the guest that nobody wants at a party, man. Come on. <laughs> Count your blessings. This book gave me incredible sympathy uh, for that point of view, because Blackthorn is thrust into this fantasy world, which is, you know... I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say this, in every way better than England at the time, uh, <laughs> although completely different and mm -hmm. alien, and he is never going to go home. This is, his, this is where he lives now, and he has to say goodbye to his wife and his child and everything he knows, and it doesn't matter if this world is better, and he's a hero here. Before, he was just a pilot. Now he's like 
uh, Haramoto. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, it's not the same. It's not home. It's not where I'm from. It's not where I want to be. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. There are so many things that I really, really loved about this book. And there's so many characters and they're so full-blooded. Um, there's so many plot lines that, that <laughs> you know, and, and Game of Thrones, like, there's a lot to keep track of here. There is. There are a lot of people and it's a really gets hard to remember who's pissed off at who for what and mm-hmm. whether or not they've overcome it. Um, you know, early on, Blackthorn gets thoroughly abused by his Japanese captors and even urinated on in public. Yeah. Um, and the man that did the urinating, they later, they never become friends, but they become respectful yes. of each other. Um, and this, it turns out, is a thing throughout this book. Everybody's been humiliated by someone else and now has to get along with them. And the question is, are they harboring a secret grudge and that will later come out or not? Yeah. Um, and I hate the end of this book. Really? I hate it. You're talking about Mariko's sacrifice? I am talking about everything that happened in the last 400 pages. I hate this book. 400 James pages? <laughs> made promises to me, and he broke every one of them, which is in keeping with what happens in the context of the book. But he promised me Blackthorn and Mariko were going to find a way to continue some level of relationship. And he lied about that. <laughs> he promised me that, oh, was it Tokunaga, Toronaga? Toronaga. That no, Torna- Tokugawa? Toronaga? I forget now. There's the I, actual I said one it the and wrong. the fictional one. Yeah. Uh, but they promised us that this guy was the good guy. Yeah. He's not. He actually is planning <laughs> to do what everybody, all of his enemies said he was planning to do. He's been lying to us the whole time. And worst of all, he promised me, he promised me <laughs> Blackthorn was going to get Erasmus back, and he and Rodriguez were going to go toe-to-toe, pilot-a-pilot, out on the open seas, the black ship versus Erasmus. There was going to be a sea battle (laughs) with the fate of the Catholic Church hanging in the balance, and none of these things happened. He took them all from me. But he did it very elegantly and brutally in a way that's just like makes you respect... I mean... The, okay, uh, spoilers, spoilers for the end of this book. Uh, we haven't given enough spoilers yet. <laughs> spoilers for the end of this book. So so Blackthorn's uh, ship is the Erasmus, and he wants to take it to sea and, and t- tackle the black ship, uh, which is the source of wealth for the Jesuits who are in uh, Japan. And he's going to conquer this prize and either either give it to uh, Toranaga, who is the fictional character, uh, who's the equivalent of Tokugawa, who is the actual historical figure, uh, give it as a prize to him, but also take it home to England, return with a fleet of ships. And he gets betrayed by the woman he loves most in the world, this, uh, this woman, Mariko-san, uh, who trades the ship for his life because she realizes she's much smarter than he is and, much, of course, much more Japanese. Yeah. Uh, she realizes that him and his ship are too big a threat to the nation uh, and that if the ship exists, he will have to die. And she loves him too much. And so she proposes to her lord, Toranaga, that he just torch the ship and keep him around. Which he day. was going to do anyway. Which, <laughs> he had always planned to sell the ship off as a way to keep the pilot alive if he needed yes. to. Yeah. And he, despite the fact he kept saying, I want you to come back with a bunch of English ships or build me a bunch of English ships and crew yeah. them or whatever. I want to be in control of the shipping. He sabotages that at every turn. 
Yeah. Uh, Toronaga is playing 40 chess and, and Blackthorn yes. is a pawn and he does not appreciate his position. Uh, he, or he doesn't apprehend it, I would say. Yeah. He, yep. he thinks he's much more significant than he is. But even yes. if he's a rook or a knight, he's still going to be sacrificed for the game. You know, you're a piece, man. You're a piece on the board. Yeah. But, you know, of all the things I was looking forward to, you know, I, I mentioned those <laughs> things, Tornaga's War, the, the relationship. Him back on the deck of Erasmus. Yeah. I just... I was so looking forward to that, you know, and whether they sailed and, and hired a bunch of sell swords or he was training the Japanese samurai to become sailors and gunners or, or however that played out, that was going to be the handicap in him fighting Rodriguez on the black ship, you know, because the black ship's a cargo scout. It, it's no yeah. match for a combat ship, but yeah. a poorly yeah. crewed combat ship, right, with two master pilots, one on each. Wow, I was so looking forward to that, and he promised it to me. You know, we did get something like that in the escape from the bay when uh, Blackthorn is piloting the galley mm -hmm. uh, and Rodriguez is on whatever ship he's on and they're fighting to be, uh, they, have to, they have to get Toranaga safely away uh, and Ishido's forces have to destroy Toranaga with plausible deniability. Uh, and if, if Rodriguez can get out of the bay first, uh, they'll have an open shot at him and they can just kill him but he managed to pilot so expertly that they leave together. Yeah. Uh, and it's, oh man, that In between a flotilla of, yes. of fishing boats with samurai arms. It was incredible. Flaming like, arrows. I can, I can see how you'd be disappointed at not having that Well, they, come they back. give us, they keep giving this, these snatches of what a magnificent seaman. Yeah. What a magnificent pilot he actually is. And Rodriguez. Yeah. Right? I mean, we could see them in action in storms a couple of times, once together on the same ship. You yeah. Know, we get to see that, yeah. that escape sequence where they're, competing with each other to occupy the same space at the same time, and maybe they're cooperating. It's oh, or not they're explicitly competing. clear. Rodriguez yeah. actually confesses later that he tried to kill him by steering into a wave and knocking him that off. That was earlier, right? Yeah. But in the escape from the bay, oh, yeah. um, yes. there's there's question about whether Rodriguez flinched at the last moment to save his own ship or actually deliberately flinched so that Blackthorn could escape. Okay, yeah, I'm with you now. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. whatever, again, and there's this, there's this respectful rivalry between these two who are on opposite sides of the religious equation. They're on opposite sides of nations. <laughs> they're on opposite sides of everything, but they're both pilots, and that's a bond that transcends, and they both respect yes. each other's skills, a bond that transcends. Yeah, the I reason that so comes into question is because uh, Rodriguez literally saves Blackthorn's life moments before that because he's on Rodriguez's ship, and uh, the captain general, or I forget what the guy's title is, basically an admiral, says, you know, we need to kill this guy. We need to poison him or kill him or just shoot him. Uh, and Rodriguez manages to overhear this and tells him, hey, leave, leave now. Just jump over the side <laughs> yeah, of the... Yeah, gets him no, off, throws him off the ship. Throws him, literally, because he's throws drunk. Him off. Yeah, throws yeah. him off the ship to save his life. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, and, you know, I mean, the fact that it, it has raised such strong emotions in me, clearly I'm in very invested in the story. This and it's such an excellent book, you know, 1,700 pages. It just flew by. It really did. You know, and I, I, was, I was a bit worried, you know, when we've picked it, you know, I looked very carefully at the calendar <laughs> and did some math in my head. It's like, if I read, you know, 30 pages a day or whatever, yeah. I will make it to the end. I flew through that thing in like eight days, nine days. You finished before I did. I, I, uh, yeah, so here's some behind the scenes information for you. Uh, I told Tom when we were going to read this that it was a thousand pages long and I figured he was budgeting <laughs> for that. And then I realized as I got into it, it was 1700 pages long. It is three Cavalier and Clays in length. It is longer than Demon, Titan, and Wizard put together. 
this yep. one book. And so I called him and said, hey, if we need to do this in two installments or something, he's like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> it was compelling. It was so compelling. And I had the time. I, was, I did what you did. Well, you know, I ignored the world around me and just <laughs> dove into this alternate reality. Yeah. And it was, it was masterful. Holy crap, is there a lot of religion in this book? Yes, there is. A book about life in ancient Japan, and it's all, it's not all about, but it's its huge chunks of it are about Jesuit versus Catholic. Yes. Um, yeah. And then even well, within the Japanese. Technically, Jesuits are Catholic. Jesuits versus Franciscans. Okay. And it's also Catholics versus Protestants. Yes. There wasn't a whole lot of Protestant going on, but there was some in there. Well, but... Blackthorn, who's our main character. Yeah. yeah. But you also had a little bit within the Japanese, the Shinto and the Buddhists didn't yeah. quite get along. But it was just absurd to me how much religion there was in this book about ancient feudal Japan. Yes. Um, it got annoying after a bit. <laughs> um, and it, I don't know. I, I do not have positive thoughts about organized religion in general. And this book did everything it could to reinforce my viewpoint oh, on those things. Wow, were these... Even the one person who arguably believed what he was shoveling um, was not a good person. Was that the translator character? Yeah. His name I can't remember now. Me either. Sukusan, something like that. Uh, yeah, he was he was almost okay. None of the religious figures, none of the Catholics are anywhere near as honorable uh, as, I would say, any of the Japanese characters. No. Yeah. And that's... A, but on the other hand... You know, they're much more an ends justify the means type of uh, worldview. So it makes sense. Well, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, everyone does what they have to do, right? Yeah. And it's just yeah. they see that very differently. Yeah. And, and again, yeah. what an exploration of, a, of an alien <laughs> culture, of an alien mindset. And I, I have no way of knowing how accurate this is. Uh, nor, nor do I. Um, however, it feels... It is, it is so meticulously detailed uh, that it feels accurate. So in the places where it's not, in the places where it, it goes against history or it goes against specific detail, I'm inclined to give Clavel the benefit of the doubt because it, it works as a narrative and it's probably close enough. It's probably close yeah. enough. Yeah, it really, so. is, it really is something. I can't believe there are seven books like this. I can't believe anybody could write <laughs> seven books like this. And I am thoroughly pissed off that the next book is not a direct continuation because I want my sea battle. No, <laughs> I yeah. I want Blackthorn and Rodriguez at the helms of opposing ships. So we gotta, I got to tell you that uh, it's the first in the saga only because uh, they number the saga historically. Right. Yeah. So it's not the first book he wrote. Um, I think the first book he wrote was King Rat which actually takes place in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II among British mm. soldiers. Uh, but I did, you know, just in reading the, the descriptions about the other books, there is apparently some character overlap in some of the books. It's not that we never get to see what happens to these people ever again, but it is not a continuous storyline. Yeah, no, right? you get to... The, it's like, the here's a really cool story back. set in yeah. this point of time at this location. Yeah. Completely unrelated. Here's a really neat story at a new point in time at a, a you know new location. This guy traveled between the two, so there's your yeah. tie-in. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so you mentioned at the top that there was, uh, or no, was the end of the previous episode that there was a TV series made of this. I uh, remember there being a, a TV a miniseries, miniseries, a television yeah. event. They television they labeled event, it at the time, yeah. and and I don't think it was well received, and I know I didn't like it. 
uh, I watched it. I was I was thrilled to watch it. And I'm just like, oh no, this is garbage. Um, maybe it's not as bad as I remember. Uh, television at the time didn't have nearly the budget that television today has. True. Nobody was spending twenty million dollars an episode <laughs> uh, like they do for Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon. But I think one of the biggest problems I had with it is that so much of this book is internal. Uh, Clavel breaks another cardinal rule of writing, which is that you pick one POV character and you stick with them. Or, or if you're, you know, Martin, George R.R. Martin, you have a POV character per chapter and you don't do what is called head hopping, where you just like bop back and forth between characters on the same page. He does that constantly. He does that constantly. constantly. And he does it so fluidly that he gets away with it. He is effortless and it, it is important to the book because you have these cultures clashing, that when one person is holding their chopsticks incorrectly and the other person notices, it matters. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but you have to hear from their thought process why it matters. Exactly. You know, you, you can't just say, you know, and Bob frowned at him. Yes. No, 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 we need Bob's inner dialogue at this moment. We, we need that because this is not a culture that we, that we, you and I in particular, uh, we're in Hawaii right now, and I'm sure a lot of people would be much more familiar with it than we are. Uh, but certainly on my first exposure, I was not familiar with that culture at all. And so I needed that internal monologue to yep. know what was going on. Yeah. And he does such a lovely job of, you know, by the, by the end of the novel, I really felt like I understood the Japanese characters. Yeah. Um, you know, not to say that I'm worthy of being, <laughs> you know, samurai or anything of that nature, but I was getting to the point where I could predict the what's they would, you know, what they would do and why they would do it. Yes. Um, and believe that it was it was it was realistic right yeah. it was it was yeah. motivated whereas you know if you'd had some of these actions happening in the first of the book i'd be like that just makes no sense whatsoever yeah. plot hole <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no the, the characters are consistent i i thought the catholic characters were also consistent i didn't enjoy them as much but they they had a consistent worldview it's like yeah, okay yeah, no, they... i dislike you intensely but you're you're consistent in your principles yep you're doing yeah. what i expect you to do <laughs> exactly yeah this is, uh, I just love yeah. this book so much. It was, I really, really, really enjoyed the first 1,300 pages of it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. There is a chunk of this book that I don't like either, but for me, it's a different chunk. Uh, I love the last 200 pages. I love Mariko's sacrifice. I love... It is such a poignant, motivated, meaningful sacrifice. Yes, it was very well handled. Yes, it yeah. was... Intricate, yes, it was part of the long-range plans that moved the, the overall story forward. It's not what he promised. <laughs> I just, I just can't look. You know, I, there, there are certain. When you pick up a book, once you get into it, you can see where it's going, or at least yeah. you believe as a reader you can see where it's going. I could see where this book was going, and at the end, he just turned so hard to the left. It, it. It was, I, it was thrilling and frustrating and surprising and annoying. Ah, um, ah. I just. You know, I react quite clearly. I'm reacting strongly to I would what he did and didn't, didn't give me. I would argue that absorb the Japanese ethos well enough if you expected there was going to be a happy ending for Blackthorn and Mariko. I didn't think it would be a happy ending. I figured <laughs> that they would end up, but they would continue to, to sneak moments of solace and probably be exposed and there would be shame and, mm -hmm. and maybe suicide or punishment of some sort there. But I didn't expect her to simply not be part of the book anymore. Interesting. You know, the same thing with the ship. I knew, yeah. I knew, because it's yeah. the only thing, it's literally the only thing he has wanted the entire book was that ship under his feet again. Yeah. And 
Tortanaga kept saying, yes, this would be a great thing to have you on that ship and, and my friend. Um, it just had to happen. It had to happen. Uh, so it's interesting. Have you seen the film Memento? Yes. Okay. Many times. Uh, one of my favorite films of all time. And, and one, of the, one of the lessons, the lesson that the character learns uh, briefly because, you know, he has a can't make new long-term memories is that it's not vengeance it's looking for, it's purpose. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly what's driving Blackthorn here. If he gets the ship and he gets the black ship and then boom, his purpose is satisfied. But not having the ship and building it again, which is exactly what the protagonist of Memento does, you know, uh, except that he doesn't burn his own ship to the, well, the protagonist of Memento, I'd argue, burns his own, own ship, ship to the yeah, ground he so he can build it again, so he can have that sense of purpose. Uh, so this, to me, was very satisfying in that regard. And it, and it had to be Toronaga in charge. It couldn't be, it couldn't be Blackthorn just getting everything he wanted. Uh, so to me, the ending was very, very satisfying. But there's a chunk before the ending, I would say about 400 pages, <laughs> before the last 200 pages that makes me crazy. And it's when Toranaga is pretending that he has given up. Mm. And he's maintaining this guy's so well that everyone is just like plotting revolution and mutiny around him because it's like he's, he's given up. We have to, you know... He's not going to win. He's not going to fight. He's just going to, we're all going to die uh, being uh, dutiful, obedient servants to this, this man who has lost it. But he's pretending, and he's pretending masterfully uh, in order to throw off his enemies. That whole section of the book drives me nuts because it's so long and it's so frustrating because he is such a, a powerful, powerful character all the rest of the time. And to see him like this, it frustrates me as much as it frustrates his vassals. Uh, but also it just sucks the wind out of the, out of the book for me right there. Yeah. I can totally see that. You know, and I, well, again, uh, whatever my expectations were, I felt like this is a sham. This is a front. You know, he's, he's putting on a show. Yeah. Um, I felt like I knew what he was doing, and I was, one of the few things that I really questioned about this book is why does nobody else see that this could be a ploy? Yeah. Right? Why, do, why does everybody assume, because... Where in the book has he actually done what he said he was going to do? Yes. Right? Yes. Um, which should have tipped me off that I'm not going to get the war that I want, that I'm not going to get the, <laughs> the you know, romance that I want, that I'm not going to get the sea fight that I want. Because all the way through the book, he never delivers on any meaningful promise. He, and it's he not lies that, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, lying is an awfully strong word, but the situations just never evolve in the way that. You know, if I promise to give you money, but hey, the wall fell down. Oh, <laughs> I clearly can't give you money until after the wall is fixed, right? All of these things seem plausible. It doesn't yeah. seem like he's a conniving, manipulative, lying bastard um, until we get to the end of the book. And it turns out he's a conniving, manipulating, lying bastard. Yeah, so that's strong to me because that's a, that's a value judgment, right? Conniving, manipulative bastard. What, what he is is someone... He's again. He's playing forty chess. He yep. is. He is someone who will only reveal the truth when it's to his advantage. He will conceal the truth when it's not to his advantage. Yeah. Uh, he will tell someone what they need to hear in order for them to do what he wants them to do, which you could think of as that's that's okay. That's manipulation. Sure, <laughs> it is. But but he's. He's not doing it to be manipulative. He's not lying to lie. He's not a bastard to be a bastard. He's, he's the most 
not immoral, but amoral character, uh, and that these considerations are just absolutely beneath him. He is focused on what he wants to do, and he will do whatever it takes to get it done. Well, and again, he yeah. wants to become the shogun because he was humiliated by the previous leader, mm -hmm. right? He was beaten in battle by, I can't think of the guy's title. Um, uh, the Tycho? Yeah. He was beaten in battle. The Tycho made him a general, made him a friend, but he never, ever forgave the fact that he had been beaten. Mm -hmm. And from that day, his plan, his long-term plan was wipe out the Tycho and his family and take over the shogunate. You know, and this, this actually winds back to, to Blackthorn and the urination thing, right? The, there are samurai talking to each other that goes, you urinated on him. He's like, yeah, I, I, I did that. He's like, would you ever forgive it? And he's like, no, would you? No. Yeah. You know, and, and throughout the book, you know, the relationship that develops between Blackthorn and Omi. Omi, Omi, Omi yeah. yeah. Um, they grow to respect each other. They grow to rely on each other. But no, Blackthorn never forgets it. And no, Omi never forgets it. <laughs> Omi knows when the moment comes, Blackthorn will attack, that will seek vengeance. Yep. So, I mean, and this is the Japanese culture. And Toranaga actually addresses this at some point. Mm. Of course they're plotting against me. <laughs> Why shouldn't they plot against me? There would be something wrong with them not to be plotting against me. Exactly. Um, and trying to betray me. The only question is, will they succeed? He has no illusions. That's one of the things that's so refreshing about him. Unlike the, the leader of the, the captain of the black ship, whose name I can't remember, uh, the captain general or the Lord Admiral or whatever his name is. He wasn't so important he enough to have a name. <laughs> he, he, was, he was absolutely full of his own bullshit. Yep. Yeah. He could not see the truth that was right in front of him because, because he was so concerned with what was important to him. Yeah. And Toranaga is the opposite of that. In fact, generally, another thing that I love about this book, it's like my favorite science fiction novels, in that the characters are mostly, the ones we care about, are incredibly thoughtful and incredibly resourceful. They are, they are the competent man of golden age science fiction. Yes. They, they look around at what their resources are and how they can best deploy them. And in this case, their resources aren't, you know, uh, obscure minerals and laws of physics. Uh, they, are, they are other people and societal customs. Uh, but they're doing the exact same thing with them. And it's, it's just incredible to me, yeah. And Blackthorn is such an incredible character because he figures this out faster than any of the other Westerners. Uh, even the, the Suku-san, who's been there for you know, 20 years or 30 years and is fluent in Japanese, doesn't have the appreciation uh, and the resourcefulness that Blackthorn does. Yeah. Wow. I, that's a lot. We said a lot. I... <laughs> well, it's 1,700 pages. It deserved to have a lot said. And, and what an excellent book. What a, what a just fantastic read on so many levels. Yeah. Can't recommend it enough. Read this book. Read <laughs> yes. this book. Set aside a week of your life, yeah. preferably not traveling through Europe. Uh, and then if you want to read more Cavell, the one I would recommend next is Taipan, uh, which is set in Hong Kong. Um, yeah. Uh, after this. I'm not sure the exact time period, um, but when uh, when Hong Kong was the designated trading port for all of China, uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. The other books are later and longer and also worth reading, but not nearly as compelling as Taipan and Shogun, I don't think. Well, yeah, that, that would be quite a commitment to plunge through the rest of the series. <laughs> I wouldn't commit, and one of them is, has no, I mean, it's called part of the Asian saga, but it, it takes place in Iran during the culture, not the cultural revolution, the revolution. The Iranian Revolution, uh, yeah, in the late 70s, early 80s, whenever that was. Hmm. Yeah, the deposition Back of the Shah. Huh? Yeah. All right, what's next? 
Well, a while back, we did some Stephen R. Donaldson. We read uh, The Real Story, mm -hmm. which introduced us to some very disturbing characters. It also <laughs> hinted at a universe much vaster and more intimidating and fascinating. And you made the mistake of saying you wanted to know more <laughs> about that forbidden space and those Amniani. Well, yeah. we are going to undertake to finish the Gap series, all four remaining books. So next up, we will have Stephen R. Donaldson's Forbidden Knowledge. All right. I'm... I'm intrigued to jump into this again. The first book was really a tough read for me because I found the characters so unpleasant. Uh, but everything that you have said and others have said online about the, the depth of this work as a whole over the five books uh, and the way the characters sort of rotate through, I'm, I'm really fascinated by. So, yeah. All right. Looking forward to what you, what you think about that in two weeks. All right. See you in two weeks. <laughs>